We will be in Psalm 73 this morning. Over the past month, we've worked through several different psalms. Psalm 19, Psalm 99, Psalm 14. And we've seen that all of those psalms, no matter what they have addressed, have pointed us to look to God more. We've seen that the Lord, that God Almighty, is the sovereign and holy King who has made Himself known to us through general creation, general revelation, and through His special revelation of His Word. He's made Himself known, but not just making Himself known, He has made the way of salvation known. We find that in His Word as the Lord Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life in our place, and yet died on the cross for our sins. But He didn't stay dead. He rose again so that He is alive and gives forgiveness and life to those who trust in Him. And we ought to trust in Him. The Psalms call us to trust in Him. The Psalms call us especially to do what we did in that last song and praise Him. To praise Him. To look forward to His return even. Because He will return one day and He will rule as the right King over all. And so our gaze is to be fixed on God. To be fixed on Him. And we sing about this. You think of the well-known hymn, Be Thou My Vision. You think of the first verse. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day and by night. Waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. God is the one where our focus and our delight is to be set and we sing that we look to him and we sing in that song we depend on him for everything and that he truly satisfies us and we are so delighted to know him and be near him but if we're honest there are times we get stuck not looking at him but looking at this world There are times we get stuck looking at unbelievers and we start to feel envious of them. We start to think when we see their life compared to ours and we say, well, that's not fair. Why do they have it so good when they don't even believe in God? Why does life seem easier for them and they wouldn't even call themselves a Christian? We see the jobs they have, the the titles, the prestige, the power, and you're like, why do they have it and I don't? We see that they're healthy, they got the beach body, they don't even do anything, and yet they're always in perfect shape, never sick, they got the best cars, a supposedly happy looking family, big house, houses that don't fall apart, a lot of money, the best athletic abilities, and we look at it and think, that's not fair. They don't even know God. They don't care about God. They blaspheme God. And here I'm trying to live for God and life is so rough for me. And so we sing with our mouth praises of God while our hearts are discontent and full with self-pity that my life isn't as good as others. So how do we handle life when it appears unjust, unfair, and just too hard For us, while those who don't know God seem to have it so good. 
Well, thankfully, the Scripture helps us with that. Psalm 73 helps us with that. The writer of Psalm 73, which is Asaph, gives us a view into his own heart as he struggled with this various, this exact issue. As his eyes looked out and saw all that was going on in the prosperity of the wicked, he struggled in his own heart to understand it. And as we go through Psalm 73, we see him bring to the conclusion for us, the point for us, that a relationship with God is to be treasured above everything else in life. I'll say that again. A relationship with God is to be treasured above everything else in life. But the beauty of the scripture is it doesn't just give us that summary statement and then we got to figure out how to apply that, how he got there. Psalm 73 walks us through the process of how he got to that point. So look at Psalm 73 with me in your Bibles. As you look there, you might notice some of your Bibles, it says right above the chapter, first verse, it says book three. And you might think, what? Book th- what in the world is that? Well, book three marks a transition in the whole Psalms. We call the whole Psalms the Psalter. It's broken up into five different books. And in, Mar- in book three, we begin a little bit of a transition in the Psalms listed at this point going forward to hymns of thanksgiving and praise. They're marked more with those characteristics. And you see there in the superscription, it says a psalm of Asaph. Psalm of Asaph. If you're looking for a good boy, baby name, there's one for you. (laughs) We're having a girl, so I can't use that name. But Asaph was a musician in Israel, in Judah. He was... Uh, of the tribe of Levi. So he was a Levite, had a special privilege position as a servant of the Lord, as part of the priestly line. And he himself was appointed as a chief musician. He was a leader of the of a choir in the temple. We see this in 1 Chronicles 15, 19, and 16, 5. And overall, he wrote 12 songs. So this isn't his only one that we have. But in regards to context of Psalm 73, we know, okay, this would have been during the time of David. And it was written by Asaph, and that's about all we know to the historical context. There's no focus given to the historical context here. Instead, the focus is on a man's journey through his struggles and his doubts that bring him to a certain conclusion. And we're going to divide this psalm up into two sections. Two sections, verses 1 through 16, are the puzzling prosperity. Okay, You could picture our journey through this psalm as going down in a valley. And at verse 16, we're going to hit the lowest part of the valley. Now, something is going to change at that point, but I don't want to spoil it. We'll get there in a bit. So let's begin with verses 1 through 16, the puzzling prosperity. Let me read this. The psalm begins in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they... 
They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no faults in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This is Asaph giving this puzzling prosperity. And we begin in verses 1 through 3 with the dilemma. What's the problem here? Well, he tells us. He begins with a positive statement. Truly, truly God is good to Israel. Truly, he's emphasizing, we know this to be true, he's God has always been good to Israel. It's clearly seen throughout the Old Testament. Even in his choosing of Israel, we know from Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, that he didn't choose Israel because they were good, because they were anything special. They didn't bring any value to God. God chose them because that was his will. Because he decided to do that. It was out of His mercy, His grace that He chose them. And He chose them because He wanted to set His love on them. To show His goodness to them. To give them His promise. And there is so much good that was shown to Israel. You could even think in the Old Testament of the Exodus event. God delivers His people out of bondage and slavery from the superpower of the world that, at that time. Through many miraculous acts... And brings them through the Red Sea while they flee from the army of Pharaoh and yet destroys Pharaoh and his army. And he had provided for them constantly. So he was abundantly good to Israel beyond what they even deserved. So there God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. The idea is those who are clean from sin, who are devoted wholeheartedly to follow him. Those who have no hypocrisy, they want to know the Lord. They want to obey the Lord. They want to follow his commands. God is abundantly good. But here's the problem. Here's the dilemma for Asaph. We see that in verse 2. But, I know this is true, but, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He knows God is good to Israel, but what about him personally? He'd almost stumbled or, or fell into living just like the wicked were. Is God good to me personally? Why is he facing this dilemma? What is going on in his mind? Well, verse 3. For or because, this is the reason, I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
He was envious. But what does it mean that he was envious? It means that he was longing for something or an advantage that someone else had. Okay, well, who is the someone else? It is the arrogant, the wicked. Those who do not live for God, the idea of arrogant, it's someone who is boastful and caught up in bragging about themselves and living for themselves. They're paralleled with the term wicked, so we know they're not believers. They're not faithful people. He was envious of them when he saw, he looked out at the world around him and he saw with his eyes their prosperity. Interesting, this word is shalom, which often we think in Hebrew means peace, but it can mean more than that. He sees the apparent peace they have because there is an idea of they're prosperous. They have been given much that seems to bring an ease or a peace of life. And so he sees this and there's a tension within him because there's a tension in the Old Testament. As a faithful Jew, he would have known Deuteronomy 28 that where God warns Israel, you disobey, I will curse you. This is under the Mosaic Covenant. You disobey, you will be cursed. You obey, you'll be blessed. And often physical blessings were seen as, or physical material was seen as a blessing from God. And they, as Asaph's thinking, well, look at all the ease they have and all the prosperity they have, but they're not even obeying God so why isn't God cursing them? And why is it so hard for me when I'm on the obeying side, but I feel like I'm being cursed? And so there's a tension here. But he's stuck looking out only at the here and the now. It's kind of like, you think of Christmas time. It's Christmas morning, everyone runs downstairs, and you begin the great comparison. <laughs> They got ten gifts. I got nine. Do you see the size of that gift? Mine's this big. There's this huge. Or the one that all the commercials like to get us envious of, of the family when they run outside and have the brand new car with the bow on it. Does anyone actually do that? Can I be invited to your Christmas party? And so there's a comparison going on, stuck in looking at the here and now which we can pause for a moment and begin to evaluate our own lives of what is our attitude when we see what others have. And maybe we don't have it. So this is the dilemma. And at verse 4, he begins to give the reason for his envy or the cause of his envy by describing what the wicked's prosperity is like, what the wicked are like, what their prosperity is like. And he says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. There's no pangs. There's no pain. They are healthy. There's no sickness or ailment. They seem to be peaceful even up and through death. Yet, us who know the Lord struggle with constant sickness at times. They're fat and sleek. This is not a fat-shaming joke. Okay. It, fatness was a sign of prosperity and abundance. The idea is... They don't have, they're so well off, they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They've got an overabundance, actually, of food. They're not worried. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are, or stricken like the rest of mankind. 
They, they don't seem to have any trials nor any discipline for their sin when they should have been disciplined for it. It'd be like a, a child who yells back in defiance at his parents and then receives no discipline for it. That's how they act. That's how they live. Verse 6, the pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. We see in verses 6 and 7, the idea of the wicked self-centeredness, that they are self-centered and they live a self-indulgent lifestyle. They even show off how wicked they are. Pride is their necklace. Their, their self-centeredness adorns them and draws attention to themselves. Look, look at me. Look how I live. They and their treasures and their way of life are presented as this is the right way to live because look how good I've got it. We get glimpses of that today when celebrity, celebrities who are millionaires and popular seem to be pre- to thought of as, well, we should listen to what they say because obviously they are doing right. Look how rich they are and popular they are. They, they must know best. It's the same mentality. Violence covers them like a garment, which symbolizes the habitual characteristic of getting whatever they want no matter who it hurts. They're not afraid or ashamed of their actions and what it takes to get what they want. They can wear it out like a garment in public with no fear. And just so you know, if if you're trusting in the Lord, if you are His child, these things ought not to be characteristic of of us. Sure, we still wrestle with the flesh. We're not perfected yet. So we long for Jesus to come back today. But these should not be characteristics of our life. We should not be thinking, I'll do whatever I want, no matter who it hurts, to get what I want. It shouldn't be the attitude of the believer. That's not the attitude of our Lord. But even in verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. Their physical appearance even portrays an indulgent, unrestrained lifestyle. Unrestrained. They just do whatever they want. Who cares how ridiculous it looks? You know, they got the gold covered toilet paper, the gold plated toilet paper. And you all laugh, but there is actually such a thing. In 2019, a roll of gold toilet papers, 22 karat gold toilet paper sold for $1.1 million. <laughs> toilet paper, okay? <laughs> Although two years ago, I guess it was, you know, high value. But <laughs> the idea is it's just unrestrained stupidity. Why in the world would you do that? Because they can. And it's fun to them. And they have, no one's going to stop them. They're, they're not ashamed of it. There's no boundaries to their sinful, selfish, never-satisfied desires. Not only that, verses 8-11, through 11, we see that even their tongue is wicked. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. Their words are wicked. They mock and speak against what God has said is good. What God has said is good. God has said life is good, and yet they protest when we try to protect life. doesn't make sense. 
because that's the mindset of the fool. They mock what God has said is good. Academic intellect is boasted as outreasoning the existence of God, the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God. And universities sell a worldview that causes people to doubt the faith all in the name of education. When you go to a university, you are paying for them to teach you their worldview. So young people, think carefully about where you go. They scoff and speak with malice, not just against God, but against each other. They speak loftily. They threaten oppressions. The idea with loftily is they lift themselves up as my voice is the one that should be listened to. I know best. Go around believing that your voice is what matters and people need to really listen to me because, you know, I've obviously... I know how everything works. I'm the expert and people need to submit to my opinions. And they oppress others with threats. They oppress to drag them to courts, to ridicule them, to defame them, to do whatever it takes to make them submit. This is the wicked. Let us remember again, this has no place with the Christian. We should not be scoffing. We should not be speaking with malice. We should not be threatening oppression, whether at church gatherings, whether in your workplace or even in your home. It is to not be found anywhere. We speak truth and love. We speak graciously. We build up with our words. We don't tear down to get what we want. Verse 9 They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts to the earth. They blaspheme God. They speak against all who know God, who want to follow God. And they say whatever they want about God and say whatever they want about God's people. And we see this. Even the men of the highest, most respectable character are target of the wicked's words. They expel their words and opinions like a parade that must be celebrated. And if you don't affirm and celebrate them and their ways, you will be destroyed. His people, in verse 10, therefore his people turn back to him, to them. His people are those who would claim to be part of God's people, but they follow the arrogant. They follow their words, their ways, their teaching. Now, there is a translation difference here between the NASB and the ESV, and I think the NASB captures the next line more clearly. It says, And the waters of abundance are drunk by them. Meaning that people consume like a drink the wicked ways and teachings of the ungodly. They guzzle down their words of gossip and slander. The wicked words, they actually find a place among them. You might have seen examples of this before. You ever see a a prosperity preacher and watch his following? And if anyone tries to speak out with the truth against the prosperity preacher, you watch his crowd just pounce on them and say, you know, you're the devil, even though you're trying to evaluate it based off of truth. They'll call you the devil if you speak anything against their money-hungering guru. They mock God. 
Verse 11, they say, I mean, this, you're getting to the low of lows here. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They mock God. They blaspheme God. This is not a denying of God's existence. This is acting like God doesn't know what you're doing. He doesn't care what you're doing. Or He can't do anything about it. This is the same as the fool from Psalm 14 who says in his heart there is no God. They, they question the truthfulness and faithfulness of God's Word. Saying things like, well, you know, Where's the cursing that God said that would come for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28? He didn't do that to us, so, well, he either doesn't care or we're right and you're wrong. Which is nothing but living according to the same lie found all the way back in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Did he really say? And so it brings Asaph to his conclusion, his summary statement in describing the wicked. He says, behold, these are the wicked. This is what what they're like. They're always at ease, and yet they increase in riches. Always at ease and increase in riches, though their ways are completely opposite of what God says how you should live. And in verses 13 through 16... We see Asaph's self-reflection here. We see his weariness as he has suffered. And he's tried to understand this. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my innocent hands. All in futility I've done this. All it's, you know, What good has it gotten for me? I'm trying to follow God and yet it's so, life is even harder. This is just a waste of time. Now notice he is clean, he is innocent, he's not defiled himself by living like the wicked. But he has daily problems too, daily pains that seem to be never ending. We see in verse 14, all day long have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. It seems to never end. And so you look out at the ease of life that supposedly unbelievers have and it tempts you to compromise. You know, if you if you just back off on the homosexuality issue, if you would just lighten up on the life issue, you know, if you would just be okay that with saying there's more than one way than Jesus, then you know, it would be a lot easier for you. We could all get along and sing kumbaya together. And so he's wrestling with this. And we see this is an internal struggle. If I had said this, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's an internal struggle. Struggle. If I had said what was pondering in my heart, if he had shared these words, he's saying he could have harmed the faith of others. One commentator says about this, we do a great wrong to believers And a special harm to weak Christians when we tell our foolish and wicked thoughts. Poorly thought out words cause destruction. Sure, there is a need to seek counsel when we struggle. But we ought to be like the psalmist here and show great restraint with what comes out of our mouths. So consider, is what I'm about to say... Is what you're about to say to somebody going to help point them to Christ and encourage them in Him? 
Or is it going to bring harm to someone and divide? Yes, we struggle and we wrestle with things inside, but we must be careful with what comes out of our mouth. And he gets to the low of lows and at the bottom of the valley and says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It's too difficult, too hard, too wearisome. I don't understand why the wicked seem to prosper even though they live like they do. He doesn't have the answer. How do you view life when it looks so unfair for you as a Christian? I think these first 16 verses help us to remember this. Temporary pleasures can distract us from seeing the truth. Temporary pleasures can distract us from seeing the truth. They, they look good, but they're really empty. They're really empty. The outside of them looks, they, they just on the surface look so pleasing and like, I'm going to be really happy and satisfied when I, when I do that. If I just had that, if I just had the new car, if I just had the house that didn't break down, if I just had da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it's hollow. It's empty. I had a friend, fellow pastor, who described it as those big chocolate Easter bunnies. I mean, they're huge. And you're like, I am I'm going to delight in this moment of this pound of chocolate, five pounds of chocolate, however big it is. And then you bite into it, and what do you find? It's hollow. Looks good on the outside. I'm going to be in a diabetic coma in the next 30 minutes. But you bite into it and it's nothing but air. Asaph was distracted. Temporary ease and treasure kept him from seeing and valuing eternal truth. And we can learn from this because we can be in the same place as him at times. We must beware of letting our hearts be taken up with wishing we had it as good as our unsaved neighbor supposedly has it. And we forget the truth. We forget the gospel. But we can ask ourselves, in what ways am I living like the wicked? In what ways am I envying those who don't even know God? And when our vision is taken off God, we get easily stuck in looking at the woes of our life and in self-pity that comes with it. We get caught up desiring what the ungodly have. And we Christianize that desire, that envy, by thinking God owes us such ease since, you know, I'm doing the Christian things. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm going to church. So, like, isn't God going to you know, bless me and it's going to be better because I'm doing the right things? And we start to think in a Christianized way that we should get our best life now. It is puzzling why the wicked prosper. And it is a puzzle that we struggle to piece together perfectly and it causes weariness at times. But you might have noticed the psalm's not done yet. It doesn't end here on a negative conclusion. We see in verse 17 a shift. Thankfully, we see a shift. We see now he's going to give us in the rest of the psalm a proper perspective on how to view this. A proper perspective. Let's read verses 17 through 28. Oh, we'll start in 16. It helps. 
But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. His perspective is completely changed. It shifts. It turns. And where does it turn? When he goes into the sanctuary of God. When he goes to normal, ordinary worship. It wasn't a supernatural experience or some supernatural encounter. It was just an ordinary worship. In the place of worship, he was reminded of eternal truths. He was reminded of the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of the righteous. He was in a time devoted to looking to God, not looking at the temporal pleasures or circumstances. Just like him, it's good for us to be reminded each week in our worship of the eternal destination of the wicked and the righteous, because it helps us keep a proper perspective It reminds us who have trusted in Christ of God's goodness and His grace and His mercy towards us. Do you recognize the benefits in your life of gathering together to worship corporately? Weekly? Asaph noticed it. And it brought him to understand the coming destruction of the wicked who seem to have it so good now But what's to come is dreadful. They will be destroyed in a moment. They will be swept away. They are like on a slippery place. Their fall is coming. It's like, imagine they're walking on the parking lot and it's covered with ice and they're just strutting with no problem. Just careless, could care less. But all it takes is one slip and boom, they are down. A fall is coming. The idea is judgment will come upon the wicked and it will be swift. As the Lord proclaimed in Deuteronomy 32, 35, he says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. It will come swiftly. It will swallow them up. 
Just like in number 16 with Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron when they protest against how the Lord had put Moses and Aaron in a certain privileged position. They protest and yet the Lord declares and proclaims that Moses and Aaron are the men that I've chosen for this. And in their Korah's rebellion and the other men's rebellion, their judgment comes swiftly that the earth opens up and swallows them and their family and their possession and fire from the Lord comes out and consumes the others. Sudden destruction will come upon the wicked. Their treasures will not save them. Their leisure will not save them. Their entertainment will not save them. Their amazing beach body will not save them. They will perish. And all they've achieved and gained will be as nothing. Just like what Jesus asks in Mark 8.36. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? It will be as if their riches and their pleasures and their happiness never existed. And in comparison to eternity, their life will be like a fleeting vapor. And so Asaph sees this and he is reminded of the truth. And yet he is also pricked with conviction. We see his confession In verse 21, he begins a confession. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I was embittered. I was sickened. I was soured of the the soul. There was a painful internal, internal toil going on, not only in trying to understand these things, but then when he realized his envy and the wrongness of his thinking, he was convicted by his sin. And he cries out, I was brutish. I was senseless, which means I was stupid. I was like a fool, a savage animal who knows nothing. I'm completely ignorant. Who am I to think I know better than you, God? Charles Spurgeon describes it as his eyes, his eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw their present and forgot their future. He saw their outward display and overlooked their soul's discomfort. And so he confesses. Confession to God consists of admitting your sins, your ungodly thinking, your ungodly behavior. Confessing, crying out for God's mercy and cleansing for His forgiveness. And trusting in Him that we are forgiven. But it doesn't end there. We don't just stop there. Though we're tempted to feel like we need to do acts of penance. Oh, I sinned. I need to spend the next 24 hours wallowing around in guilt. We confess, we repent, and then we move on in works of repentance. We move on rejoicing that God has been so gracious and willing to pardon us of our iniquities. And we see Asaph do that here. He is led to faith and rejoicing. In verse 23, nevertheless, even though I had sinned, forgive me, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Even in his turmoil, the Lord was still with him. God had shown kindness and faithfulness. God had led him through this trial of trying to wrestle with doubt and understanding life. And the Lord did not forsake him. And if you're in Christ, he will not forsake you either. He is guided by, it says, your counsel. Asaph was guided by the truth, by the word of God and what it proclaims. He was sustained by the Word of God. 
And afterward, after this life, he knows that the Lord would receive him in glory. Though we may not have the supposed riches of the wicked in this world, we have in Christ eternal riches that the world will never have. And we can look forward to that with hope. And we hit verses 25 and 26, and I would encourage you to memorize these verses. They are an amazing reflection on how good it is that we get God. We get God in the gospel. Who am I of heaven but you? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer intended to be given is no one. No one but the Lord. There's no one but the Lord that can satisfy. There's no one but the Lord who is so near to me through the good times and especially the hard times that even though I don't have all these riches and treasures, I can say God is enough. God is enough. Note the the closeness of language here. His greatest desire is the Lord. That's his great treasure. Spurgeon illustrated it this way. Temporal pleasures are like glitter. But a relationship with God is like gold. And in case you didn't know, gold is better than glitter in a lot of ways. (laughs) What joys on earth can compare to knowing and loving God? To being right with God? Money? Well, it's hard, it's hard to earn, and it disappears way too quickly and way too easily, and you can't take it with you. <coughs> Toys? Well, their excitement wears out, they break, and there's always something newer and better, and you always need more batteries. Cars? They're cool, but they are expensive, and they seem to always need maintenance. Entertainment? Well, it's fleeting. You always need the next Avengers movie. Health? Well, it diminishes, and it's temporary. There is nothing in this life that can compare to being as good as knowing God. And the only lasting, good, pure, fulfilling joy that can be found is found in walking with God. Even when our life may fail, as he says... It may never, we may never get the ease and pleasures that the wicked have, but we have something far greater. In Christ, we have God who is our strength. He's our rock. He's the one that helps us endure through every season, every hardship. We get the Lord as our portion, which it is significant that he calls the Lord his portion because he was a Levite. And when you think back of the land being distributed to the tribes of Israel, the Levites did not get land. They got the Lord as their portion. They got the privilege to serve the Lord, to be near the Lord, to know the Lord even better than everyone else. They get a special relationship and dependence upon the Lord, that He is their greatest portion, their greatest treasure. And that's what we get if we trust in Christ. Do you know the best thing about the gospel that you get is not necessarily your forgiveness, the eternal salvation, The best thing you get is you get God and a right relationship with Him. You get to know Him. And we get to know Him forever. He is our portion, our strength forever. That we have assurance forever. The wicked don't have that. Well, he ends by reaffirming 
that the wicked will perish. If you've not repented and trusted in Christ, you will perish one day. You will find yourself under the judgment of God forever in the lake of fire. And it is dreadful. And it is terrifying. And the Bible does not try to hide how terrifying it is. But you are privileged and blessed at this moment today to have a chance to repent and trust in Jesus before it's too late. And you need to do that if you have not. But as he ends, but for me, it is good to be near God. These last verses, especially this last verse, is like the back cover of a book. Where he started in verse 1, God is good to Israel, but what about me? As the front cover of the book, the back cover of the book, to bring the whole story together, is now he knows God is good to him personally too. God is good not just to Israel in general. God is good not just to his people in general, but God is good to you too. And it is good, it is the best thing to be near Him, to know Him, to delight in Him. He is our strength, He is our portion, He is also our refuge. As Asaph remembers here, God is my refuge, He's my protection. When the world is wicked and crazy, and it would be nice to have those things, but I don't, and I see why it's better now to know God, God is our protection from those wicked ways. And it leads him to declare the wondrous works of God. How do I view life when it looks so unfair for me as a Christian? Well, eternal truth, the scriptures, draw us to delight in God as our greatest treasure. He is our greatest treasure. And when we drift the Scriptures pull us back and anchor us down. What is here is temporary. What is to come is eternal. I mean, what good are earthly pleasures if they lead us to eternal pain? If you gain every toy, every prestige, every power, every wealth, but never repented and trusted in Christ, all that was meaningless. So please be aware of worldly distractions, temporary pleasures, because they will try to capture your heart's desire. They will try to take you down their destructive path, but that's exactly where they go. Destruction. Love God. Love His Word. Look to Him. May He be your vision where you look and say, He is my delight. Where do I find that? How do I have that nearness to God? Well, I trust in Christ and I get in His Word. And I seek to know Him better. I pray and commune with Him in prayer. I gather together in corporate worship. Just as worship was important for ASAP, it is important for us. Because it's way too easy during the week that we get stuck in our own bubbles. Our own worlds. But corporate worship is good for us. We need it. We need each other. We need to worship God with each other. We need to hear the word preached together. We need to sing it together. Because it takes our gaze off ourselves and lifts it up to something greater. Something eternal. Something better. And that something is God. And may that then overflow into pondering the goodness of God as our portion every day of our life. 
Can you say that God is enough? God is enough. Well, people say they want the Bible to be made relevant and relatable. And I don't think you can get much more relevant and relatable to Psalm 73, where you see someone honestly convey his struggles through trying to understand what goes on around him. But then you see him find the solution, the only answer. And the answer is God and his word, what it teaches A relationship with God is to be treasured above everything else in this life. And so may we be able to sing, Be Thou My Vision, with a right heart. And may we be able to sing verse 3 of it, where it says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we wrestle with various thoughts and the various things we see in life, that we would always come to the conclusion that you are right in what you say and that you are our greatest treasure. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to you so that we get to be near you. While we are near you now in in knowing you, what your word says, and what you're like, and you dwell within us by your spirit, we look forward to the day when we will actually be with you, in present with you. We get to see you, and that day is coming. Help us to be strong, to be courageous, to stand with conviction knowing that that is the day I long for, no matter what comes in this life. You are enough, and I wait for my blessed hope to appear. Fathers, we prepare to take communion together. Use your word to draw people to you, to save them. Use it also to bring whatever might be needed for your people. Help us to approach it in a worthy manner. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.